Welcome to Alligator Preserves, everyone. I am your host, Laurel McCarg, and today I have the distinct pleasure of introducing you to award-winning author and many other things, Michael Kilman. And this just might be my most thought-provoking interview to date. So stick around. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Michael, long time no see. Yeah, it's, it's great seeing you. I think the last time was Denver Fan Expo last Halloween. I believe it was. And how much fun was that? And you showed up to my booth, to my table, and I didn't even recognize you. <laughs> well, it had been two years, right? Since with COVID and all the, all the restrictions and everything. So, I mean, I don't blame you. <laughs> it had been two years and you had on a cap, a huge hat, a wizard's hat. And I think you also had a mask on. So, I was I was struggling. Anyway, that was funny. I I was so embarrassed. Anyway, that was fun, wasn't it? Halloween weekend. That was a great. That was a great con. That was a lot of fun. Lots of great panels. Lots of great people. It was kind of a nice, really good first back sort of con after a long time away with all the the pandemic stuff for sure. It was. I did not make the July one this year, but I'm I'm hoping to next July. How about Same, you? Same actually. Yeah. Yay! Yay! I'll know who you are. Uh, Yeah, I'll figure it out. Anyway, Michael, tell our authors, tell our authors and our listeners and our watchers a little bit about you. Who are you? Who are you, Michael Kilman? So um, I am an author, of course. Uh, Also, I'm an anthropologist. Um, In in particular, I specialize in media and the imagination in anthropology. So how do cultures tell stories? Why do they tell stories? How do the stories shape culture? And how does that work in media systems as well? Um, So that's a lot of what I do. Um, And uh, I'm also an instructional designer. So I create educational content uh, at the moment and kind of an occasional professional. I've got uh, no classes this fall, but in in uh, you know the winter, I have a wonderful and fun class called Anthropology Through Science Fiction. I'll be teaching, uh, which is one of my absolute favorite classes to teach because I get to teach my two favorite things: science fiction and anthropology. All age groups? Do you teach just college students? Do you teach any adults? Uh, yeah. So actually, that's an interesting question. I, I mostly teach college age students and universities. Sometimes I give talks at events like Nerd Night for example, and, uh, you know, other free lectures around or I'm on panels all the time. But also, um, I, I, a couple of years ago, as you know, I published a book called Build Better Worlds, an introduction to anthropology for game designers, fiction writers and filmmakers. And I published that with another anthropologist, a biological anthropologist, who her specialty is forensics. So she knows all the body stuff and evolution stuff and fossil records. And so we, we make a really great team. Um, but we actually kind of just decided that we're going, we're beginning to work on a kid's book for anthropology. Um, so it's it'll be, uh, you know, we're just in the outlining stage at the moment, but it'll be out sometime next year. Um, 
but it, it essentially will be, you know, middle grade approach to teaching about culture and society and things. So, um, you know, while I mostly teach adults, you know, and I, of course, I also have children. So it's really interesting learning to adapt your lessons for different age groups or, or even just different backgrounds, you know, you know, different people absorb information in different ways. Absolutely, they do. Now, when I when I looked you up and did a little more research on you, it said that you got a degree in applied anthropology. So explain a little bit to our audience what it means to be an applied anthropologist. Well, classical anthropology is the whole, I'm going to go live with this culture for a couple of years and learn everything I can about them. And the idea was at least two years. And the reason at least two years is because you know, think about if you came to this culture for one year, right? And you had to deal with all the holidays and you had to try to understand them. And all, there's all these strange and shocking and surprising things. So they want you to spend a year learning about that and also learning the local language. And then you get another year of time in the field where you actually come to understand what's going on. Because when you first see something, you're never going to understand all the dimensions of it. You have to see it multiple times in order to do it. So the minimum was always like, let's go live in another culture for a couple of years and figure it out kind of thing. That was That's like classical anthropology. Applied anthropology takes all the things that we have learned from anthropological research and study and study of culture and people, economics, psychology, religion, gender, race, class, all of that stuff. And then saying there are problems out in the world. What problems do people have? How can we use this knowledge about culture, about how the way people think about things or know things or imagine things and find solutions to these problems? So applied anthropology is solutions oriented. And I do want to make an important distinction because people are like, so you're impressing your Western knowledge on these other cultures. That's not what applied anthropology does. We essentially end up in a community or a nonprofit organization reaches out to us and we collaborate with the cultures. What do you need addressed? How do you need, need to solve this problem? What are your solutions? Because quite honestly, a lot of the problems around the world People know how to solve the solution already, but there's all these external forces, you know, you know, big companies or, um, you know, someone coming in and mining in their, their region or something. And so they need assistance either in resources or awareness or various other things. So anthropologists are kind of like allies for solving problems. Um, we're also intercultural mediators. So sometimes we'll get applied anthropologists will get put in a situation where you're between a culture and a nonprofit and the nonprofit keeps doing something and the, the culture is pissed about it and no one can figure out why. And so the, the anthropologist comes in and tries to mediate, tries to be kind of the, essentially an interpreter, but not of language necessarily, although that's part of it, but also of the culture. Because, you know, there's a reason you call you don't call people translators, you call them interpreters. Because if you've ever tried to, you know, um, translate something directly from one language to another, it doesn't, it doesn't work right. Well, the same is true of culture. You know, culture doesn't just simply translate in a one-to-one -one context. There are things like even emotions that have no correlates in Western culture. You know, there are emotions that we have that other cultures don't have. And there are emotions that other cultures have that we don't have, for give example. Me, give me an example. Of, of that. Um, 
Oh, well, there's this great, uh, there's this great episode of the podcast Hidden Brain uh, on emotions. And forgive me, I forget the title of it, but it talks about, or maybe it was invisibilia. It's one of those, mm-hmm. one of those sciencey podcasts great, about great the brain. Great podcasts, by the way, both of them, yeah. yeah. Um, and they talk about this anthropologist who had went into this culture and there was this kind of really interesting it wasn't angry. It wasn't sad. It wasn't mourning kind of emotion. And there's, there's no English equivalent to that particular emotion, but it's like something that they experience in a very particular circumstances when they're having like this clash of emotions together and they make this certain wailing noise. And it's, it's only present in this one particular culture and nowhere else. And the anthropologist who is living there, his wife died while she was there. Um, and so he's experiencing, and he didn't experience, like it wasn't a grief thing. It doesn't fit into the grief box because it's not just about grief. It's this this collection of like intense emotions that mix together and they have a particular emotional word for it. And, you know, he later talked about how, you know, years later, actually, I think it was like two years after his wife's death, he actually experienced the emotion because he had lived with those cultures for so long and something in his head clicks and he understood it. But he said, the problem is there's very few words. He used the indigenous word again, forgive me because I don't remember what it was, but he uses the indigenous word for the emotion, but like it doesn't have any way of translating into English. And so um, there's also a book by anthropologist Catherine Lutz called Unnatural Emotions. Um, and that's really about the how there are certain cultures that really don't have any of the standard Western emotions that we have. You know, you think of like, you know, joy, sorrow, um, anger, those kinds of things are not present in the same way. Um, they're significantly different and you can't, you oh, the best you can do is combine three or four emotions, uh, in English to come to understand what their one emotion is in their other language. So it, it just moving through the world gets really, really complicated <laughs> because for every language, there's a distinct culture and there are are still somewhere around 6,000 distinct language and tens of thousands of dialects. So, you know, those are all different ways of, of, of knowing the world, essentially. And so as an applied anthropologist, you would want to help solve or mediate a problem in a, a specific culture. Is, is there a, a size limit to the culture? In other words, could it be a small village? Would it have to be something bigger? Where where would someone like you spend your time? Well, applied anthropologists are everywhere. You could you know turn over a rock and find us. Uh, we're in hospitals. We're in small villages and cultures. Um, there are anthropologists in the military. Uh, there are anth- which there's a whole ethical conundrum with some of that or questioning about what should we be doing in in that kind of situation. I don't think I ever met an anthropologist <laughs> when I was in the army. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, there were. Uh, Maybe I didn't know. Fact, the second, the Second World War. Uh, a lot of the intelligence was done by Ruth Benedict and uh, Margaret Mead, who are famous anthropologists. Uh, they actually participated in using anthropology, and this was controversial uh, as a tool for the Allies to understand the cultures of the Germans and the Japanese, so that they could actually wage campaigns that would be confusing to them culturally. Um, 
and it worked with the Japanese quite well. Um, you know, the the famous ethnography is the chrysanthemum and the sword. You can actually still read it. And that's essentially she expands on it greatly from her report that she wrote to the American military for the American military uh, and the war effort in the Pacific theater. Um Again, it's controversial. Like, should anthropologists and social sciences be participating in waging war? You know, false fair and false fair in war. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it, it's a complicated thing, and there's very strong feelings in all directions with anthropologists themselves about that stuff. Because, to be quite honest, a lot of what anthropology began as was a tool of colonial oppression. How do we understand this culture so we can further control them? Uh, and the British were, and the French in particular were very. Um, prolific in in using anthropology and so obviously over time you know as we began to develop as a science and we formed ethics and you know we participate in human subject review that kind of stuff is no longer considered ethical for a number of reasons um you know but but again there are anthropologists everywhere and so you know you might get you know you might work with a native american tribe who's having problems with their water rights and getting access to you know their treaty guaranteed water rights as an anthropologist you might you know contact uh legal uh help or something like that if they ask, specifically are asking for you to help with this issue and and then you kind of try to work through this whole problem together with the community and then with like the various uh interest groups and stuff um, I've done some consulting work with, I've actually done some consulting work with the military and 17 Native American tribes. Um, and they were looking at, you know, kind of the history of what we call traditional ecological knowledge. How do these individuals interact with their environment? And what does that mean to them? Uh, what are sacred and important to them about this land and all that other kind of stuff? Um, and the federal government has to do a certain degree of consultation with indigenous groups um, in order to, you know, do any kind of major land products projects that, you know, this is a result of several policies. One of the most famous ones is um, NAGPRA, the Native American Grave Repatriation Act of 1990. Um, um, so there's a lot of like laws and stuff that anthropologists can help people navigate as well. Uh, in hospitals, they do things like, you know, help um, understand difference um, in cultural differences in medicine. Um, a real, there's another really famous book for you. It's not written by an anthropologist, but a journalist, but it highlights some of the cross-cultural conflicts in medicine. It's called The Spirit Catches You and You Will Fall Down. And it's about a Hmong child, um, Hmong is spelled H-M-O-N-G, uh, with uh, epilepsy and their cultural interpretation of epilepsy is it's sacred, but then, you know, the Western interpretation is that it is a disease and it needs to be treated. And so you see this clash of two different cultures interpretation of medical stuff. So anthropologists will help with stuff like that. Um you know, there's lots of really if there's any any topic you can think of, an anthropologist is studying it um, and probably an applied anthropologist is trying to solve issues surrounding it. Um, there's lots of us out there. So, so it's a very useful tool because essentially what anthropology is, is teaching people to step back, try to suspend your judgment, not that you don't have judgments, but understand um, what is actually happening here? What are the forces? What are the complex systems that are at play uh, in the, in this picture? And, and so we take a holistic approach. How do you look at all the dimensions of a person, an identity of a culture? And how do you, where are the problems rising uh, in that particular configuration? And, and then learning to speak to people in their own culture. 
because it, you can speak the same language all you want. But I mean, think of how think of how divisive the politics in our country are right now. We're essentially speaking different cultures. And, and that's that's a fundamental problem that we have. We can't you, talk. Do you do you have a favorite area of study? Uh, region or region. topic? Region. Uh, I would say region. Um, yeah. Well, my two particular areas as an undergraduate and graduate um, were primarily Native Americans. And then I also spent a lot of time focusing on the Middle East and undergrad in particular. So trying to study Middle Eastern politics, culture and history. Um, So those are my two big areas. I'm also very interested in India and China, you know, and I've I've spent a lot of, of time reading that stuff. You know, I'm also amateur historian. So I read all kinds of history books all the time. I I mean, I'm honestly, and this is probably the answer you're going to get from most anthropologists. I'm just interested in everything. (laughs) So it's like, we're just, we're just very curious people, you know, like any topic. Well, how does that, how does that work? Where, where, where human, what are humans doing with that? But I mean, of course, like I'm interested in space exploration anthropology, which is like a new thing that's going on, looking at what you know, privatization of space is doing, what NASA is doing, what spa- the space race did, you know, what are implications of colonization? Because obviously, if you get a diverse coalition of cultures on another planet, which is probably inevitable, what's going to happen there? Um, you know, and then, of course, you can delve into the realm of science fiction, like The Expanse, uh, right? And so, like, The Expanse is a great example of what happens when you just put a whole bunch of people in the asteroid belt of different cultures and you see their blends and all kinds of really interesting stuff. And so. it all deals with class systems. Oh yeah. Oh and yeah. So, so, so let, let's segue into your, your chronicles of the great migration series. I, I have, I have two of your books here, Mimi of the nowhere and upon stilted cities and I've read the third one, um, Sarah of the uh, Runners. Um, I don't think I have your fourth book. I'm going to have so to there's, there's two upon stilted Well, there are two upon stilted yes. cities. Yes, yes. And that's, that's because they're actually really, there were one book and I split them because they were kind of long, sentence kind of thing. So one is part one and one is part two. And then Sarah of the Runners is the, the fourth book. Is, is the fourth one. All, yeah, all right. Yeah, yeah. So, so, I, so there is the reason why I was a little bit confused when I read that. <laughs> the fourth book because i missed the third one um give us an elevator pitch either for mimi of the nowhere which is the first one or for the whole series what you know you're in an elevator you gotta sell this to somebody our listeners out there you want to get them to read it because it is fascinating i'll just say that right now but go ahead and give us your pitch so it's it's a series about giant walking cities and a war between telepaths. I mean, that's the, the very simplest way I can possibly put it. Uh, it's in a post-climate change era. Things did not go very well. And um, there are massive um, storm systems, which they really, you don't really, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but not a huge one because they kind of, it's a couple of people question it a couple of times throughout the earlier in the series. But in the fifth book, you find out that the reason that there's never ending storm systems is because humans tried to, to create artificial climate systems when the climate was changing and it backfired and created never ending superstorms in the ocean and constant roaming superstorms on land. So you get massive sandstorms and massive hurricanes that essentially never end because we tried to fix climate change after it was already too late sort of thing. Or there was some government project essentially that that tried to do this kind of thing. Um, and so the only way to survive was to, to keep 
being nomadic. But the problem was, is that the earth is so hot. It's, you know, a, a, you know, a comfy day is like 170 degrees. So it's like, you know, and then the air is kind of toxic from all the methane released from the permafrost. So you can breathe it, but after a couple of hours, you get extremely sick. So you can't just be out on the surface of the earth. And so what people did was they invented walking cities in the early 2100s. And then, um, and from there, you know, you ended up having the launching of successful launching of 12, uh, walking cities, you know, um, of which, you know, uh, one of the very first things that happens is one of them is destroyed. So, uh, so you, and by a terrorist organization. So there's a lot of really big moving parts in this series. Yeah, literally big moving parts. Uh, (laughs) 12, uh, biblical. Uh, it wasn't intentionally, it wasn't intentionally biblical. It was just kind of a way of, it actually originally, there were 17 attempts and 12 finished because there's, there's a story and I actually haven't written about this yet. This will be a part of eventually a prequel series, but one of the cities, Atlanta, um, it, it tried to take off, but a superstorm hit right as it was taking off and it just destroyed the city. So there was an attempt at, uh, there was an attempt at a lot more cities, but ultimately they, you know, only 12 were able to survive the initial kind of migration from, you know, stable land-based city to, you know, giant 200 meter walking leg city kind of thing. So fascinating. They Some say that sci-fi is predictive. Oh, I hope this isn't predictive. <laughs> I hope this isn't predictive too. <laughs> I was hoping you were yeah. going to say that because I was going to say, it. I'm like, I sure hope that your <laughs> vision is not predictive. Is there anything in your vision that could be predictive? Uh, I mean, yes. I mean, there's life extension. Uh, for example, if you have the means, if you have the money, you can essentially live forever. Um, and, and, you know, I, I would think that at some point that may be possible in the future. Um there's also some discussion of like artificial jet gravity generation, but I'm not a scientist, so I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I read some things on gravity and, and quantum physics and stuff, but like, I really hope I didn't get it too brutally wrong. Well, Andy, we, Andy Weir didn't stop just because he wasn't exactly a scientist when, when he wrote his books. So wasn't he an engineer though? You're, you're, I feel like yeah, yeah but there, there was, yeah. Yeah, he he actually uh, admitted to not knowing a lot of things, but so that's so you're in good company. Okay, okay. Well, and I'm a I'm a social scientist, so that stuff will be really well flushed out. But uh, but the hard science stuff, quite not quite so much. Um, suspension of disbelief. Yeah, suspension of disbelief, right? And and also like sometimes things are utterly ridiculous or exaggerated or hyperbolized for a reason. Right. I mean, science fiction is about picking up that big old rock, turning around and looking at it. Right. It's it's not it's not necessarily I mean, you know, there are people out there who are really only about hard science fiction, but then you lose the possibility of using imagination to engage with other possibilities. Right. It's so it's. It, you know, and, and I I like both. I like hard and soft science fiction. Um, I do actually often prefer softer science fiction because for me, there's more arena to play in. There, there's more like you're not as worried about the boundaries of possibilities. You're more worried about the, well, what if, what would humans do if this happened kind of thing? And I like playing with those ideas because, I mean, when you actually read and study cultures, you realize we all do weird and bizarre and strange things. Every single culture does. So it's really interesting in science fiction to see, oh, you know, what if, 
um, you know, what if, uh, you know, a city was walking, what kind of implications would you have to do the social structure in that city? And, you know, what kind of, how would you keep population under control if you've got walking cities and you also have life extension? Like that's, you know, and you have to have an enclosed ecosystem so that, you know, the cities are surrounded by what they're called envirodomes. They're essentially electromagnetic shields that surround the city and essentially keep the closed ecosystem. Um, and so, you know, and that provides, all, that keeps all of your air and your, your temperature control stable. And, you know, the city is a very deeply regulated ecological system. So how do you, how do you control people in those systems? What kind of political climate climate is there, you know, and then of course, you know, why you can't just assume, especially since the way these cities are ultimately built, they're kind of thrown together in the wake of terrible climate disaster happening all around. Like you're not, you hadn't shattered all the capitalistic system. And so it still very much lives in the city. You can't really, you know, and in, in, in the book, of course, you know, speaking of class stuff we were talking about earlier, there were several historical exempts, attempts at uprisings and, most of them failed or they failed to do anything specific because there is just so many ways you can control a population uh, in, uh, you know, a, a closed ecosystem. So it, it, it can be, you know, but inevitably all oppressive systems fall too. They never last forever. And speaking about your, your walking cities and the construction of them, infrastructure isn't forever. No, it's so- not. Right. So, I mean, you, you've got all kinds of things you're dealing with in, in the series. Y- yeah. You mentioned, I, I didn't read the whole thing, but um, I, I saw somewhere that you said that this series is not dystopian. Mm-mm. No. It, it's uh, actually, how, how, is it, how is it not? Explain that. What is it? So there's a lesser known category of fiction called polytopia. So there's polytopia. utopia. There's utopia, which is like the perfect society in the, of the future, right? And a lot of actually early in science fiction in the 15th, 16th, and 17th century uh, were poly or utopia literature. It was how can we learn about these cultures we're encountering as we're colonizing the world and put them together with ours to make the perfect society? And so that's some of the very earliest science fiction. Like Gulliver's Travels is actually very clearly an early uh, progenitor of, of science fiction um, from the 17th century. And every society he visits is either, you know, dystopian or utopian, or it's somewhere in the middle. And, and so it's asking a question of what makes a good society. That's actually that's actually the core of science fiction. If you go all the way back to the second century, what is usually considered the very first science fiction novel, Lucian's A True Story, um, where they go to the moon and there's a war between the moon and the sun, the, the moon people and the sun people. And it's it's what it is. It's all critique on, you know, modern Greco-Roman culture, right? Just like science fiction is always a critique on the, the present. Um, and it's, you know, it's satirizing, but it's also at the same time asking, well, what does, ma- what makes a good society? What does a good society look like, you know? And so we have this entire, you know, breadth of history, you know, throughout the last 2000 years, really, of people asking these kinds of questions. Um, and so you get utopian literature, which is the good stuff, dystopian, which, you know, classically 1984, Brave New World, totalitarian dictatorships, right? You also get post-apocalyptic. And post-apocalyptic doesn't necessarily mean dystopian or utopian. It just means after the end of the, after there was major societal crash. And then, you know, this is a society in the, that aftermath, the post-apocalypse, right? So people often say that dystopian post-apocalypse are necessarily equated, but they actually aren't. 
And then the, 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 the one that I, I read about, and I think it was only like a couple of months ago, I was like, oh, this is explains why I don't like calling my book a dystopian. It's polytopia. It's the process of transmission transition from one kind of societal structure to another. And that's a lot of what this series is doing because it is fairly dystopian in the beginning books. Oh, yeah. But as you know, reading it, things begin to change fairly quickly for better and worse. So... <laughs> You know, it's the polytopia is the period of change. It's the it's the transformation of culture and society. And in a lot of ways, the best stories are in a, are kind of polytopian, right? I mean, the, the the change of society, you almost always, even in fantasy, you almost always have the situation where you have the status quo and now the new magic big bad is going to come disrupt the status quo and there's massive culture change because the big bad is disrupt, disrupting the, the, uh, the status quo. But of course, Polytopia is also very specifically more leaning towards science fiction, but I don't see why you couldn't kind of apply that term to other genres as well, necessarily. Okay. And and by the way, you you won the Author Elite Top 10 Finalist Award for this book in your series. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, people seem to enjoy it. So <laughs> I, I absolutely enjoyed it. So uh, Build Better Worlds the book that you wrote. Um, is it possible to build our world better? N- no oh, pressure, I, no, no pressure on you, but yeah, is it I possible? Mean, look, we social scientists, I mean, we've been at this for a hundred years. We know a lot of stuff. We don't have all the answers, mind you. I'm, I'm never going to make that claim, but there are a lot of things that we could do to restructure society that would make it better but it would change a lot of the power dynamics and the money dynamics. And that's always, that's always a very difficult, <laughs> that's always a difficult sell to people is like, well, your life is going to have to change, but the world will be better long-term, you know? So it's, it's almost, in you know, in some ways, things like pandemics are kind of an excuse for us to make uh, rapid change. And in fact, I did uh, some consulting for some companies um, as an anthropologist uh, looking at what happens to culture uh, as the result of uh, of major global pandemics, right? Uh, and so I actually did a little bit of background research into you know kinds of the kinds of things that happened after the the Black Plague and things that happened uh, after the 1918 pandemic in particular. Um, I mean, you know, the Black Death. Uh, you know, really made the Renaissance possible. We would not have had the 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 European Renaissance. We probably would not have had the rise of Europe, especially since, you know, one of the things the Black Death did was it took out the Mongol Empire. Without and, taking out the Mongol Empire, Europe may never have come to prominence because the Mongols were in Poland. They were they were literally on you know Eastern Europe door, doorstep and were poised to take over. And the and there were some there were some reasons that they slowed down, including their military technology and things. Um, and you can read all about this, by the way, in uh, Jack Weatherford's book, um, Genghis Khan and the Making World Making of the Modern World. He's a anthropologist and historian, um, and he spent a number of years in Mongolia studying the culture on top of reading the, the historical text. And, and pandemics um, pandemics don't see class. And- yeah. And- yeah, and they're in a way maybe a little bit of, of an equalizer. Although it could be said that people, you know, with money can get better treatment. Possibly, they do. Uh, and and I think one of the reasons we may see less change with this, this particular pandemic is because it it the kill rate was fairly low compared to the other pandemics. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have you have a third of Europe 
evaporated and actually much of the noble class much of the the power and landholders and you know the economic powerhouses of society were wiped out then you had the room for a merchant class to essentially rise and grab power in the wake of, of the black death and so you start seeing massive structural change to the economic system and then in, in 1918 of course you know there was already labor movements going on uh at the particular time you I mean think about famous events um you know in uh right before world war one the triangle shirtwaist factory fire for example where you had you know, two million New Yorkers could go on the streets and protest after this terrible factory fire that killed hundreds of women, you know, because of all kinds of really unethical practices by these yeah. companies and stuff. And that that was one of many disasters that led to mass protests, um, you know, and there had been protests for since really the history of the United States is a history of protest. There, there's never been a time. And I mean, one of the first things that Washington had to do in his administration is put down a protest. So it's, you know, it's, it's, there's never not been protests in this country, even before we were a country, there were protests. So um, it, it's a quintessential American thing to want to try and change things. So that's, that's, always been a core characteristic of American life um, and hopefully change things for the better which I, I do think that we are changing for the better. And I think it's hard to see, but, but I, but one thing I always told students in the classroom was this, we have never had a time in history where we were so self-reflective. Uh, we've never had, for example, you know, a global declaration on human rights. It's not a perfect declaration, but it is an attempt to have a conversation about what it means to be human and alive, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, what it means to have our rights met. We have never discussed things like bias in history. Perhaps maybe a few people in history had discussed bias, but as an entire society, an entire world, we're discussing what are the limitations of our knowledge? Uh, you know, we're, and we're having these conversations on social media, which, you know, are complicated in part because some people are ready for change. Some people are not ready for change. Um, you know, some people don't have, you know, essentially in some ways they don't have the privilege to think about change because they're too poor. They're living paycheck to paycheck and they can't, they can't even think about what a better world would look like because they're working 80 hours a week. So yeah. it's, you know, there's all kinds of complex things going on, but I think, I mean, if you look at a lot of the, the numbers, globally speaking, we are doing better in a lot of ways. And even population growth is slowing down pretty significantly. Um, you know, there are some social scientists, you know, and of course, this is a, a, up for debate who think that the absolute max limit that humans will have is 10 billion people. Because if you look at all the, the developed countries in the world, all of them have low birth rates, all of them right now. So, um, you know, and, and the, the people who are driving, um, you know, higher birth rates are, are tend to be, you know, in areas where there's also high infant mortality rates as well. So um, it, it's, it's very complicated, but I, I, I have hope that we will do things better, that we are changing for the better, that we are having those hard conversations. I think our one big, I think our one big barrier is um, things like 24 hour news media um, that essentially it, people always forget that, you know, Fox News and MSNBC and all those outlets, they are there for profit. And so and entertainment. Their, job, yeah. their job is to get you worked up 
and outraged and upset. So you keep tuning into their channel over and over again so that their stock price can keep going up so that they can keep selling you ads, right? And so they're, they manufacture all this kinds of outrage. If we were to remove these kinds of outlets and all of these talking head political pundits, uh, this is an ideal world, of course. Um, I love and, it. And we actually, you know, started talking to each other more. And also, like one thing people don't realize is media has not always been total shit. It's not always been. It's never been perfect. But, you know, in the early 20th century, every city had a dozen or more major newspapers. Mm -hmm. And so every major newspaper would publish different stories, different points of view. You know, some of those papers would be union based papers. Some of those would be more conservative based papers, some would be more progressive papers. Some of those would be like anti-war papers. Um, you know, some of those would be deeply capitalist. Some would be deeply communist. And so what would happen is. In a city, you'd have this amalgamation of ideas from numerous different perspectives. And no, people wouldn't always agree, of course. But, you know, my neighbor would be very likely be reading a different newspaper than I, I was. So he'd have a different perspective on the same events. And then when we discuss it, it wouldn't be like one manufactured you know, piece of propaganda that we all repeated verbatim over and over again with like, for example, local news, 200 stations are owned by Sinclair, which is a basically one of the largest Sinclair media services, which is one of the largest contributors to President Trump's political campaign in 2016. So, you know, when you have a media outlet that has 200 stations and access to every household in America, pretty much, you know, what they say, what scripts they write. And if, you know, you want to look up, there was that whole thing that came out a few years ago in support of, uh, of President Trump that they made every journalist on 200 station read this script. And mm. um, it was like this eerie thing. So if you look up Sinclair propaganda on Google, you'll find it. It's, it's this creepy video. Someone just took all the the recordings of the scripts and loot and dumped them on top of each other. So you can actually oh, hear boy. them parroting each other. So you, you see stuff like that. Money that buying is our, those power. Are our biggest barriers. Yeah. 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 Money change. buying power is, is, is a little scary. It is. It is. Mm. So um, and that's the biggest, I think those are the biggest roadblocks is we, we can't talk to each other because we are just fed this diet of, of these talking points rather than, considering many other ideas that that that's no gray no no gray areas anymore yeah no, right that's sad right no gray areas well in addition to being an anthropologist a filmmaker an artist an author and a teacher you're also a poet yes and <laughs> do you have a poem that might relate to what we're talking about here yeah that you absolutely. might read yeah, yeah. And I have a poetry book coming out later this month, September 17th. It's also it's 10 years of my poetry and art that I've been working on. So um, it's kind of like it, it was really interesting going through all of this stuff and just being like, wow, I've I've learned a lot. I've changed a lot, you know, in 10 years. And, and do you ever go back and say, oh, wow, I wrote that. I do that. Yeah, I'm I wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember what it felt like to write that. <laughs> yeah, no, I do that all the time. It's like, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. Who, who and sometimes that? I'm like wonderfully surprised. And sometimes I'm like, oh, I wrote that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So actually, this is a piece of spoken word. So the book is part spoken word, part more traditional poetry, and then part there's a there's a couple of narrative poetry poems in there as well. Um but this one is about anthropology, actually. It's specifically about cultural relativity as a concept, because 
a lot of people misunderstand that concept. You see it all the time on social media, cultural relativism is poison or cultural relativism is a justification for allowing cultures to do horrible things one another. And that that's not what it is at all. So I, I decided to write this piece of spoken word to kind of help people understand it. So help this, me understand this. Is it, yeah. is, is it, do you have a title? Yeah, it's called It's All Relative and it will be in the, the collection. So it's actually one of my more recent things. So, all right. <clears throat> It's all relative. It's all about relations. No, I don't mean sexual intercourse. I mean how people build their foundations, how they relate to causation or build a nation and what they consider freedom and liberation. The tracks of humanity don't stop at one station. The imagination is filled with endless destinations. Everyone has hopes and dreams, sorrows and frustrations. Everyone wants to experience the cessation, the sensation of cessation of suffering and damnation options. We are a range of cultural options. Our choice is the result of a kind of cultural adoption. Humans are a wonder to be sure. We explore, go on tour, only to identify what we consider pure and impure. We fight wars because we're insecure. But wait, there's so much more. For every detour we endure, we can also find cures. For our madness, for every act of hate, there's more than one of love pushing back against sadness. The thoughts people carry are the result of causes and conditions, a steady diet of enculturation, a kind of cultural brain nutrition with of what's clean and dirty, right and wrong, how best to gather food or sing a song, how to unify a community or get along. Culture is about adapting and understanding where you belong. So much of it is arbitrary, but we claim tradition is important because it has gone on so long. But tradition is selection of past perceptions rooted in imagined past and cultural objections. There's nothing inevitable about the paths we choose, the things we keep, the things we lose, or how we use and abuse one another when we forget that all beings have once been our mothers and yet we yell and scream and blame one another for our problems. And so it's relative the way we know our goals, dreams, aspirations, the places we go flow below the assumptions you'll find a place to grow but take it slow because if you think you know you're wrong relativism is a practice lifelong and that beginner's mind keep you from getting too headstrong don't assume right or wrong just be cautious just be curious instead of furious cultural relativism is a poison a disease oh please i've got no interest to appease the keyboard warriors whose agenda is to throw feces like our primate cousins but relativism doesn't mean you allow ignorance to thrive it means that you contrive to understand what it means to be human and alive the things we do to survive and strive for opens the door to more possibilities because every culture is a library of wonder. They all have lessons, lessons and wisdom bright with lightning and thunder. So shut up and listen and put down your hands. You don't have to like it, but you should try to understand. Wow. How, how long did it take you to write that? Hmm. An hour, I think. Seriously? Yeah, I just get like this. I blame my my youngest. He makes me play this game with him when we go on walks called the rhyme game. And so for the last, really since COVID started, we've been playing this game. He picks something out in nature and I have to come up with rhymes off the top of my head. So rhyming's actually, I've just been practicing a couple days a week. So so just coming up with rhymes have become easier and easier for me. <laughs> Th that is wonderful. And Oh my gosh, I am absolutely going to get your book when it comes out and everyone else out there listening to will, I'm sure, because I want to read that several times. 
so many points, and that is so anthropological in tone and in message, and that was beautiful. And, you know, I also throw some of my spoken word as well as my non-spoken word poetry up on TikTok as well. So if people are curious. What's your TikTok handle? I think it's just our author, Michael Kilman, I believe. So Okay. All right. I I will find you. I'm just, who am I on there? I'm just Laurel stuff, I think, on TikTok. And I used to be Laurel the Duck Wrangler, but, you know, we don't have have the ducks anymore. (laughs) That was beautiful. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Let's go back to some sci-fi stuff and sure. uh, ESP and mind reading, because of course, you know, the, your series has a sisterhood of mind readers. Yeah. Um, I remember, I remember learning about ESP when I was little, when I, and so this was a very, very long time ago. And I was so fascinated by it. Why are we always fascinated by extrasensory perception and that, that sixth sense and being able to tune into something that's not one of the five approved senses. Um, yeah. And, and actually I, I can't remember how many there are, but there are way more than five senses in science too, you know, like, uh, you know, sensitivity to light, for example, or sensitivity to touch, like heat and cold is not exactly the same as touch. There's all these really interesting, fine distinctions, but you know, it, it's a good starting point five, right? It, it's easy to remember and, and we can begin there. I think one of the reasons is we want extra senses or superpowers of various other things for the same reason we have religion in a lot of ways. It is something we call in anthropology supernatural agency. So agency is this, it's the ability to act, but it's not just about choice. It's also the ability to act within a given social system. So the choices that I can make are of course limited by the society and culture that I live in and also like what I know, I can't make a choice I don't know about, for example, right? So you're, you don't have unlimited choice in any society. I mean, we have a lot in this country for sure. We're lots and lots. We love choices. Just walk down the cereal aisle in a store. Yeah. Right. We, and I mean, hell, I always joke every time it's a terrible joke. I make it all the time, but every time I'm at a credit card machine and it malfunctions, it says, geez, we love choices in this country so much that we have to have three different ways to run our credit cards and none of them work. You know, so it's, but, uh, but, but no, so agency is this ability to act and supernatural agency is what you're doing when you pray to God, right? You're like, oh God, please help me get out of this situation. You're, you're trying to get a supernatural force to intervene on your behalf, but like superpowers is like, you're granted those, those, the extra supernatural agency and you can do what you want with it. And so I think it's, we just have this wonder. I mean, look at ancient Greek mythology, look at ancient Egyptian mythology, look at the epic of Gilgamesh. I mean, if you look at all the oldest stories we have in history, a lot of them are about supernatural agency. So because we just want to be able to transcend our limitations. We are such curious creatures and we're just so interested about how far can we take this imagination? How far can we, you know, our, our creation go? We have this spark of genius in us. And I think, I think that desire to have supernatural powers comes from that spark. I love it. So you have the idea, of, well, you have mind reading in here, but you also have set up a system whereby the people who can do that have to learn to set up walls. Yeah. So, you know, can't help um, comparing and only that women. to big, to, well, can't, but can't help, you know, looking at the idea of big brother. Right. And yeah. 
and people listening to you and watching you and there's there's some invasion there so yeah how, you know yeah. How, how how do you square that circle so so you know the mind is a complex thing right and so the approach that i took with their telepathy is that it's only the things that you consciously think that you can pick up on all the subconscious stuff or the deep stuff is you know that stuff you i mean you can really dig but there's a, a a risk that you could kill both yourself and the person that if you're trying to dig super 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 deep um some people are easier to read than others because some people's thoughts are more clear than others some people's you know i would imagine someone like me my thoughts are are always all over the place so probably i'd be really easy to pick up on <laughs> but um it, it's it's a situation where you know you can influence people but you can't force so much so you know like the antagonist for example uh her telepathy is manipulation like she spends a lot of time trying to manipulate people so she picks people who already have bad intentions and just keeps planting ideas into them and, and giving them you know like well maybe try this or do this and then of course the more she manipulates them over time the more she has control over them right so there's you know because they get themselves deeper and deeper into situations and, and it it becomes a kind of madness. Um, and that kind of madness is this kind of deep push or deep attempt at using mind force and like using force. And that force is called the red veil. Um, and it is, it is Scary. explicitly <laughs> forbidden except for emergency circumstances. Um, you know, if you have like, you know, a whole bunch of people trying to murder you or something, then it is an appropriate time, but it's defensive only because, it can possess you that that kind of madness can take you over and alter you and and also kill so it, it is very taboo um and so you know you have a, an organization called the sisters of the order of the eye uh who have been trying to trying to protect people you know in this post climate change era they're doing their best to try to make systems better but of course they're just one small group and you can't force you can only kind of uh, you know manipulate a little things you know, just just little pushes or shoves in, in different directions. And so some things they're able to do, but really not very much because, you know, people are very strong willed. Even if you suggest an idea to them, they don't have to take it. So um, so you still get these, uh, you know, this the horribly corrupt system that they're trying to combat with and they're trying to do better. But they're also trying to not interfere too much because too much interference is too much like the bad tele telepathy. So it, it's, you know, and I also... I also ultimately decided that, you know, only women or someone with a partial sex, second X chromosome, so an intersex person could have this particular characteristics, kind of like, um, kind of like colorblindness is really relegated to men because there's, there's certain characteristics with the chromosomes that make it much, much more likely. So, um, and, and also I just thought about how society works and like a lot of what women have to do to deal with sexism and, uh, you know, and toxic men and all kinds of stuff is, is essentially mind read. So women are already kind of doing that thing in society <laughs> as it is. They're having to figure don't out how to navigate. Tell this anyone. <laughs> so, we are, so it, yeah. it made more, it made more sense. Um, and it created really interesting dynamics too. 
Um, you know, and I, I think this, you know, kinds comes from Brandon Sanderson's kind of approach to hard versus soft magic. And while I wouldn't call this magic, it's still power, right? And so having like a more hard limitation on your power creates also different architecture in your fictional world, right? Because the characters have to push up against those limitations and they have to figure out how to solve their problems knowing what they can and can't do. And so it creates other kinds of inter you know intercultural and character to character dynamics that are different than than soft you know power essentially mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you also magic. play with ai yes yes and, very and, very different and, view of ai <laughs> and sent and sentience with ai uh so talk a little bit about that and and are we ever going to lose the a in ai yeah, that is a, yeah. I mean, at what point uh, artificial, what, what point does that word, you know, um, when, when does it lose its meaning? Cause it's intelligence, right? I mean, you know, so, so that, that is a, that's a really, I think, wonderful question to consider is what is artificial about it? I mean, you could say a lot of the things that we do are quite artificial and how we've constructed society, you know, but then you get into this whole, what we call a Cartesian dichotomy, you know, Descartes, nature versus culture, you know, but it's a little bit of a false dichotomy because culture is a part of nature and nature is a part of culture and, and those kinds of things. So, you know, when we talk about things, you know, a building being artificial, like, yes, but it's made from us, and it's made from materials of the world. You know, it, it, there's this whole philosophical debate we can go on for hours. Um, I don't think, me personally, maybe I'm just an optimist, I don't know. I don't think that artificial intelligence would be inherently evil. I, I really don't think that. And, and this is kind of reflected in my series. I, I think that if you think about what an artificial intelligence would be, it would be a system of information that was, you know, super fast at processing all the kind of present available cultural data provided to it, right? Mm-hmm. So if you took all of the world's history, all of the world's cultures, all that other stuff, you know, that would include the good and the bad, right? It's not just including the bad or that humans are conclusively evil because we're not. While, you know, a lot of the major events we think of are historically ugly, you know, everyday life is not that way. There, there's a lot of kindness and love and all kinds of things all around and humans do all the time, every single day. Think about, you know, what parents and children do on a daily basis. And so uh, for any any species or any artificial intelligence to simply include that humans are worthless and evil and they just don't like what they don't understand. Well, I mean, that's also not true too. You know, if we look at difference in small scale societies, difference is accepted when you know people, when you actually know a person one-on-one, it's, it's the distance that makes difference difficult. Really? It's the, it's the, I don't know my neighbor because, you know, I live in a, for me, for example, I live in an apartment complex with, with like a thousand units. So it's like, I can't know everybody. And so I can't care about everybody. I don't have the capacity to do it. But if you're in a small scale society and someone is fundamentally different, you know, and there's, there's stories of like, there was a story on NPR of, of an individual who came out as trans and who was the mayor. And it was, everyone was like, well, I know the person forever. So it's totally fine. Like, you know, so when we, we actually have a face to somebody, when we actually interact with people, we don't, hate on each other the same way. That doesn't mean you get along with everybody in your small community. (laughs) Lord knows we all don't. But there's a difference between not getting along with someone and actively hating them too. 
So, so I don't think that an artificial intelligence would take that approach. My, you know, if an artificial intelligence is in a mirror image of us, I, I think it would emphasize its curiosity because, okay, I know all this stuff about humans. What about the rest of the universe? I mean, there's so many humans are interested in the rest of the universe. What is there to know out there? So I kind of, I kind of feel that artificial intelligence would be far more curious and interested in the possibilities than it would be about oppressing humans. Um, and also teaching anthropology through science fiction in the past, I've read a whole slew of academic research and articles on when did artificial intelligence become evil in science fiction? It doesn't really happen. I mean, there's a couple of examples before, but it doesn't really happen until Hiroshima and Nagasaki. When the bomb is dropped and we suddenly realize how dangerous our technology can really be on a global level that we can, in fact, destroy the earth, that's when you start seeing malevolent AI pop up everywhere. There's a couple of examples of like rogue or malfunctioning artificial intelligence earlier than that, but the malevolent humans must die approach does not come until Hiroshima and Nagasaki happens. Because again, science fiction is a reflection of our cultural experiences. Um, and there are there are scholars who have anthropologists who have written books on how does the history of science fiction correlate with the history of the world? What kinds of questions do we ask and when? Because, you know, it you can't ask a question about something until you know about it, right? So until it comes up in the world, you can't think about that, which is why in the 1950s and 60s, you had this whole slew of terrible, cheesy B sci-fi science fiction movies about atomic energy and what radiation would do and giant ants and spiders and all kinds of things, right? What would all space do? Yeah, Godzilla. Godzilla Mm -hmm. is a great example too, right? And then uh, John Scalzi's new book plays on that whole fun thing if you haven't read it it's really great uh the um what was it called the uh oh what are they called the um the godzilla type monsters i always forget the kaju the kaju preservation society uh and it was it is a hoot it is just a fun hilarious read it's nerdy as hell if you like godzilla stuff please go read it it's great it's it it is one of those it's a popcorn read you just sit there and read and laugh and have fun awesome i will get that and i will have links oh my gosh michael i I could talk to you all day, but I know, I know that you have a few things to do. What do you do to unwind? Do you ever unwind? Oh, I'm bad at unwinding. I I mean, I always, every weekend I tell myself I need to unwind, but I I do meditate uh, lots. Um, You know, I'm a practicing Buddhist. I uh, go on lots of hikes. Uh, I do century rides. I try to once a year, which are hundred mile bike events. Um, And uh I, you know, I, I play video games and I, I read lots and lots and lots. I love reading. So um, I, I would say, you know, I, I love to play video games once in a while for just like total and, and TV once in a while, too. But it is it's tough because I just get so interested in doing things that I just I forget to relax. And it's it's a little bit of a problem, which is why meditation daily is so good for me, because it's like, no, no, this is forced time when you sit and contemplate things rather than just like, oh, what's this? Oh, what's this? You know, it's instead of being like the the dog and uh, up uh, squirrel. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many squirrels and oh my gosh, we have the world at our fingertips. I mean, come on, we could learn everything, everything every day. We could learn everything. And there's, they're just, yeah. like, aren't enough if hours you, or days. 
If you know how to do research and you know what good evidence is, you can find out just about anything in the world you want in this era. That is a gift that we just do not utilize. So Right. Uh, so we know what's next. Your poetry book's coming out. What's it called? Uh, it's called uh, um, A Luminous Liminality, which liminality is an anthropology term for the space of change or transformation. And it can be in cultures, but it's often referred to in ritualistic kind of things like okay. religion or spiritual transformation. So it's, you know, the caterpillar and the butterfly are the, you know, before and after the liminality is the chrysalis phase. Okay. So, All right. And when does this come out? Uh, this comes out September 17th. Oh, right around the corner. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm should have the next book in the Chronicle Mig- Migration out before the end of the year. It's, it's almost finished. So, book oh, book. all right. And uh, do you have pre-order set up for your poetry book? I, I don't just will, yet. Will you? So I, you will? Yeah, I will. I will. Oh, It'll be right. up in the next okay. couple of days sometime. Okay. It is, okay. I, I'm doing one final image edit before I, before I, I, I put it up. So. Okay. Uh, have any shout outs to people you want to say hi to? Uh, thank. No one in particular. I mean, you know, thank, of course, my family and friends. And, um, you know, I have a couple of amazing friends who support my creative process. And you guys all know who you are. And I really appreciate you. And where can our listeners find you and your amazing material? So pretty much everything I have goes on my website, LeridiansLaboratory.com. Um, that's, that's where I just post a smorgasbord of everything I'm doing. It's not really a very focused. It's more of like, Hey, you want to see what my projects are? Here they are. And there's writing and world building resources for free on there, uh, you know, based on anthropology. And some of those resources were kind of the early progenitors of the world building book. Um, I've got a YouTube series, anthropology and 10 or less. Um, and I also have another series interview series on YouTube. Um, called Anthropological Inquiries that just interviews anthropologists. There's not very many episodes of each of those up, but there are some. Um, you know, I um, and uh, of course I have samples of writing and poetry on my website. I've also done documentary films, which are up on my website. So there's there's some of my artwork is up there. So there's just anything you want to find out about me is probably on that website. So it's a it's um, a great website, by the way. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. No. It's very eclectic. So. It is very eclectic, <laughs> as are you. And yes, yes. As it's not very I. good marketing. In fact, I, I was recently told maybe you should do like a different website for each section. That's, that's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it is a lot of work. And you know what? I, I don't agree. I, I think it's good to know that you are an eclectic individual and you have many talents and many interests in many areas. I mean, I remember being told early on, you should be the education writer, the, the school age t- writer. And I'm like, no, I like to write dark, really weird things too. Yeah. And no, no, I'm not going to put myself in a box. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you don't put yourself in a box. And we can have all, all the different things that we do on our websites. So For sure. So wonderful. That's I think that's awesome. Well, Michael, I will have, and listeners out there, I will have links and photographs. Uh, about the things that we talked about here. Michael, you'll send me maybe some of the links of some of the things that you mentioned. And sure. I've already got some great photographs of you and you and I at, at, a, at a con. Uh, you were on one of my panels on world building at one of the one of the cons. Those are great events, by the way. Oh my gosh. They are. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, well, maybe I will do another panel with you next summer I, in Denver. Yeah. Set it up. That I'll, would be I'll definitely be happy to. That would be wonderful. Michael Kilman, 
you are a man of so many talents and I could talk to you forever. Um, listeners out there, thank you for visiting Alligator Preserves and check out Michael Kilman's work. That's Kilman with one L. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll see you next time when we'll have somebody else that's not as, well, I'm not going to say not as fascinating as Michael, but this was this was tremendous. I really appreciate your insight and your view of the world and the fact that you're still an optimist despite <laughs> everything, right? Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's an honor to be on with you, Laurel. You are also quite brilliant and interesting. <laughs> and so thank well, you. Thank much. you. I hope, I hope to see you soon in person again. And Me thanks, too. thanks for your time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com.